Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane here with you on Friday, June the 24th. This week, pain, that age-old problem. We published a trio of papers about pain management, one looking at post-operative pain, the second paper looking at chronic pain, and the final paper looking at pain among cancer patients. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the second paper concerning chronic pain, Dr. Dennis Turk, from the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Washington in Seattle in the United States. Dr. Turk, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. How much have we really learned, and this is touched on in your paper, about the underlying processes of pain in the past decade, and and how has this influenced the way that we actually try and manage pain in our patients? You've asked a two-part question. One, let me ask to answer the first, which is about what have we learned, and the second part will be what impact has it had on how we're diagnosing and treating people with chronic pain. In the past 12 years, there's been a tremendous amount of research and knowledge has exponentially increased as far as understanding the genetics that may be associated with pain, neuroplasticity within the nervous system, and a concept that's referred to as central sensitization, which is sensitization of the central nervous system with the presence of ongoing pain, uh, which may persist long after the original injury may have resolved. Understanding much more about brain imaging, both changes in the structure and the function of the brain that's associated with persistent pain. And then there's a tremendous amount of research that's uh, helped us to understand more about the psychology of pain, the important roles of fear and individuals' perceptions of control uh, and expectations and how important those are. And then lastly, on the environmental context and the importance of both the social environment, but also the economic environment and how that influences uh, the experience of pain. So that's sort of the first parts. We've learned a tremendous amount since 1999 and actually over the last decade or two. And when it comes to treatment, that's where it gets very interesting because the translation from what we're learning to actual making a difference in treatment, as discussed in our paper, really hasn't been that great in that the knowledge hasn't translated into new treatment approaches and it hasn't resulted, I don't believe, in uh, greatly improved outcomes with those treatment approaches. And could you comment on the, the age-old question of, if you like, the genes and the environment, the genetic factors, the environmental factors that uh, can contribute to the way people experience pain? Well, obviously, everybody has a unique genetic makeup and then the phenotype that's associated with the individual. And those uniquenesses are what potentially contributes to the variability in how people respond to pain, how they respond to different treatments about pain. And there's also uniquenesses as far as the psychological state of the individual. Persons uh, have a long history. The average duration of pain by the time that we see them in, in a tertiary care pain facility is seven years of pain. The average age is about 44 years old. So prior to their pain developing, they had 37 years to be the kind of person that they are, their life experiences, their learning history. And then by the time I see them, by the time that we're talking about their pain getting that long, they've had seven years living with their pain. So that's made tremendous changes. So there's an interaction between the genetic composition of that particular individual and how that environmental uh, history influences the interactions and the, the individual's experience by the time that they evolve into having a chronic pain problem. The cost of pain shouldn't be underestimated. It's something that perhaps isn't analyzed or assessed enough, both the pain to the individual, but obviously collectively to society. Yeah, that's an extremely important topic. One of the one of the concerns in the area of pain is that people have tended to focus very heavily on a specific disease process. So you can talk about cancer, you can talk about back pain, talk about arthritis, but they tend to forget that each of those conditions has pain associated with it to society, 
uh, in as far as disability payments, loss of uh, tax revenues, retraining of people to take different jobs, and we haven't even mentioned the the cost to the individual person who has the pain problem and his or her significant others. People live in social context, so it's not only the, the individual who has the pain problem, or it's not just their back, but it's person in that environment that becomes important. In estimates in the United States, in the article we mentioned 210 million, I'm sorry, billion, that's billion with a B, or 1,000 million, is the direct costs of pain are, um, actually both direct and the indirect costs. More recently, there have been some statistics that are going to come out at the end of this month and um, a special report from the United States Institute of Medicine that's estimating those numbers are actually underestimates and it's more close to $500 billion a year is what's being spent for both direct and indirect costs for pain. Now, I also understand that within the UK and other countries, there are also significant costs, but I think it's important to keep straight the difference between medical costs and then the indirect costs related to disability, related to uh, other factors that are not directly related to medical costs, and then the actual cost to the individual and his or her significant others or family members, partners, what have you. Briefly, because we don't have much time here, just some headlines really, could you just give a little bit more detail about current treatment modalities, and these obviously cross over between pharmacological, surgical, psychological, and uh, even complementary. These are all discussed in, in your paper. Can you just talk, talk about the headlines here and, and, and how they can interact? Those particular treatments that you just mentioned, they've been around for thousands of years. Uh, opioid medication has been around for at least 4,000 years, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents have been around for hundreds of years. So those treatments have been around with minor tweaking and modification. What we're learning, however, is that none of these treatments by themselves are sufficient to treat people with chronic pain. And most likely what we need is some combination of treatments because the outcomes for all those treatment categories you've talked about from complementary to surgical is about 30 to 40 percent of patients get somewhere around a 50 percent improvement at best, which means that a substantial percentage of patients continue to have pain problems. And none of these treatments by themselves are likely to be sufficient, at least in the short term uh, that we're talking about. Just comment on the way ahead, the future, and, and the research agenda in this area for chronic pain. Well, I think the research agenda that we can talk about at different levels. One is to obviously genetic research is going to continue to to understand how those different uh, genetic compositions vary across individuals. There's going to be research to start looking, hopefully, at new new molecular entities instead of just looking at the opioids and non-steroidals that have been around, as I said, for thousands of years. Are there new medications that can have new targets that we can develop in the shorter term? I think, as I mentioned, the combination of treatments, but then also starting to look at not answering the question of is the treatment effective, but what treatment for what patients with what characteristics defined on what outcomes on, uh, compared to what alternatives and at what cost are going to be the kind of questions, sort of getting to the point of value as an outcome divided by what it costs to produce that outcome and can we match those outcomes and those values to different patient characteristics and those patient characteristics may go everywhere from genetics to psychological factors. So moving towards the personalized, more personalized approach to, to pain management, do you think? Exactly. I think right now, the way the medications or other treatments tend to be used is when someone has a specific diagnosis, they receive a treatment that's matched that diagnosis. But we're learning much more that even within a diagnosis, there's tremendous uh, heterogeneity, and that we need to understand the, the mechanisms that are involved in that heterogeneity and then match treatments to those uh, different characteristics of those patients, whether they be genetic, whether they be demographic, whether they be psychological, or whatever else that might differentiate these individuals. It's a fascinating series, and we urge everyone listening to this podcast, do please 
look online or in the print journal, the free papers on the pain series are published there. And finally, just a, a brief one to mention the other papers in the series, just to put this in context. Right. We've been talking about my paper, which was the, the sort of the midpoint in the series, which is about chronic non-cancer pain. And the first paper talks about acute, particularly post-surgical pain and the range of interventions that are evolving in providing more effective care for people uh, in post-surgical pain. And the third paper in the series is focusing on pain associated with cancer, or what we're calling uh, cancer-related pain. And that particular paper is addressing the importance of putting pain management within the context of the broader treatment of the person who has cancer and in palliative care. It's a really interesting series and it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Dennis Turk, on the line from the University of Washington. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you so much. And also do look out for the lead editorial in the current issue of The Lancet. That's dated June the 25th to July the 1st, which comments on this series and the important role that physicians have in managing this age-old problem. Well, many thanks for listening. See you next week.